All right, welcome to Equipping Hour, and this morning we start a new class. This is Bible 101, and I'm going to read from Psalm 19 just to begin our time. Uh, The Bible is described, or God's Word is described with a number of different nouns here in these few verses. You're going to hear the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, and the judgments of the Lord. And then you're going to hear the effects that these produce in the lives of God's people. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray. God, we're thankful this morning that we get to look at your word, to look at what your word is and what it is like. We pray that you would help us, that it might foster in us an increasing appetite to know you through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you did not download the outline this morning, we've got some printed copies. I've got a couple of volunteers. You can just put your hand up. We're going to go through a little bit of material here, so just put your hand up, let these guys know that you want a copy for yourself, and uh, we'll make our way through. This is uh, a five-week course on the Bible. We're going to be studying the Bible. Uh, Not so much the Bible's contents as what is the Bible, what is the Bible like, what are its characteristics. Now, where are we going over the next five weeks? Now, you can see that the print is really, really small. That's my fault. I didn't follow the template. And uh, so you may have to squint, but everything that's on the screen is also in the handouts coming around. Uh, So what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks is, number one, the importance of a right bibliology. That's this morning, a bit of an introduction. Why do we need to think about the Bible rightly? What are the consequences if we don't? What are the benefits if we do? But that leads us to a number of questions. Uh, Why should I trust the Bible? Uh, Is the Bible reliable? So we're going to be looking in the coming weeks at inspiration. How was the Bible written? And then at canonization. Canonization is the, the, the process or the recognition, we'll talk through that, about how the books of the Bible were collected, put together, recognized. Uh, do we have all of the right books in the Bible? Are there books that we don't have that should be in there? Are there books in your Bible that shouldn't be there? We're going to be looking at canonization. And then we'll be looking at preservation. Has the Bible that has come down to us in the 21st century, has it been preserved well, faithfully? accurately. Uh, All of these things lead to uh, some of the questions and answers revolving around, uh, can I trust my Bible? Is the Bible reliable? Are there errors in the Bible? And then the last thing we'll look at is textual criticism. This is the science of the discovery 
of the original manuscripts of Scripture. If you've ever been reading your Bible and you see a little footnote that says, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not contain this word or this verse. Or if you've got an ESV Bible and you've been reading along, say in the book of Acts, and you come to verse 27, and then all of a sudden you come to verse 29, and there is no 28. Why is that? Is there something missing? Has somebody Thomas Jefferson my Bible? You know, cut stuff out that he didn't like. Um, And how do we know that what we're reading today is faithful to what, say, Paul wrote or Moses wrote so long ago? Uh, The science of textual criticism, which we'll look at, is the process of getting back to the original manuscripts. So we're going to begin our time with a little bit of an experiment. This is an experiment I've been wanting to do for a long time. So I've got my volunteers here. Everybody gets a blank piece of paper. Cool. Yeah. Now, if you're, if you're already trying to decide what kind of paper airplane I'm going to build with this, I respect that. But that's not the point of this exercise. Okay? Uh, you also need a writing utensil. Okay? If you don't have a writing utensil, I need a third volunteer. Dave, you want to come hand a pen to anybody that doesn't have a writing utensil. You may use crayon, you can use colored pencil, you can use marker, uh, you, I was going to say you can use your own blood. Don't do that. I was thinking, um, as Scott was in Psalm 23 this morning, I have a friend named Jerry Singleton who was in the Hanoi Hilton for seven years, if you know what that is. He was a POW, uh, American airman shot down in Vietnam. And he was not a believer when he went in. He was a believer when he came out. And Psalm 23 was a critical part of that. Uh, And and he recounts the the story of um, the North Vietnamese captors who treated these men awfully. Um, On, was it, I think, I believe it was a Christmas dinner. Set a banquet before the men. In some strange, random act of kindness that didn't fit with anything else the North Vietnamese did. Um, actually prepared a banquet before them in the presence, in, in their presence. And so the, the whole phrase, God has prepared for me a banquet in the presence of my enemies, was uh, something unique and, and precious. And it was interesting, those guys didn't walk into the Hanoi Hilton with Bibles. They, they walked in with what they remembered from parochial school or wherever they picked up bits and pieces of scripture. And they wrote for themselves a Bible from whatever they could remember and passed it around uh, the, the, the dungeon cells they were in. All right, does everybody have a piece of paper? Okay. Uh, we're still looking for some piece of papers. This is a great opportunity for me to stall just one more moment, and I'll do so with my favorite Jerry Singleton quote. Um, he says this, God does not waste anything, especially pain, grief, and sorrow especially for those for whom his son died and whom he loves with an interminable love. So to hear that from a man who spent seven years as a captor in a concentration camp is pretty remarkable. All right, there's my Jerry Singleton story and uh, the preciousness of the Bible uh, for those men held captive. All right, does everybody have a blank piece of paper? Okay, great. Um. What I'm going to have you do is write down what you see. Okay, I'm going to give you about five minutes to write down what comes up on the screen. If you can't read the screen, 
I have a printed version that my volunteers will send down the aisles. Okay? And, and your job is not to look on your neighbor's paper, but you, all by yourself, before the Lord, copy what you see. That's your task. You guys ready? Got your piece of paper and your pen? I'm going to give you five minutes. Go. Squint or raise your hand for a printed copy. Hey, Josh, is this streaming? Jake's asking me if it's streaming. He's home. It's not. Jake wants it to. Okay. Thanks.
60 seconds. And no, medieval scribes did not have cell phone cameras, in case you were wondering. I've seen some of you out there. Twenty seconds. Okay, need my volunteers to get out to the ends of the aisles. Uh, pass your papers. If you're in this section, pass your paper to the right, to the outside. If you're in this section, pass it to the left. If you're illegally seated in one of the outer reaches of the universe, I don't know what to tell you. Just hand your paper in. You are not allowed to keep these. I need them all back, every single one. I don't know if this little song is familiar to any of you. I, I learned it this way, and I'm not going to sing it, I'll just say it. Marezy dotes and dozy dotes and little lambs a divey, a kittle a divey too, wouldn't you? Oh, I saw some nods. You, I think you have to be above a certain age to know that song. How many knew that song? Okay, a few of you. It's good. It took a long time for me to realize uh, what was gobbledygook actually was supposed to be real words. I, I was literally in the sixth grade when I learned that elemento <laughs> was not a filler word in the alphabet song, but actually was the letters L, M, N, and O. I was pretty ashamed as a sixth grader to make that discovery. All right, are all those in? We good? Thanks, fellas. All right. Uh, you, you might take a guess at what that experiment is about. Um, we will discover together in the coming weeks what that is all about. Uh, let's talk about bibliology. Bibliology comes from two words, biblios, logos. Biblios means book, or in this case, a very specific one, the Bible. And then the logos, a word about something or the study of something. You know some of your ologies, right? Um, biology is the study of life. Entomology is the study of entomens pastries. No, insects, right? So uh, bibliology is the study of what? The study of the Bible. Good job. So we want to study the Bible itself. What is the Bible? Uh, what is it like? What are its characteristics? And of course, uh, we know the Bible is many books with many authors. 66 books, uh, 39 plus 27, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books, 66 books written over the span of nearly two millennia, depending on when you date the writing of Job. Uh, the, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, were probably written in the 1400s B.C. And yet the Bible is also one book with one author. One book with one author. Capital A author, written by God. We uphold dual authorship of the Scriptures. Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul did. Who wrote the book of Romans? God did. Right? We'll look at that more next week. 
we also understand that the, the Bible is the very word of God, the breathed out word of God. When we talk about inspiration next week, what we'll really be describing is expiration, the breathing out of God's thoughts, God's minds in words. The Bible is the word of God. And we also affirm that the Bible is the sole source of authority, the sole source and authority for doctrine and for spiritual life. That is, where do you look to for truth, truth about God, truth about us, truth about the way the world is and why it is the way it is? The Bible. The Bible trumps everything else. Nothing competes with the Bible, and the Bible is not one authority among many. The Bible is the sole authority on these things. And the Bible is also the sole authority and the sole content for spiritual life. This goes along with the Bible's own affirmations of its necessity and sufficiency. Here's a question. How should theology relate to the Bible? Everybody's a theologian. Everybody holds doctrine. You, you believed things about God and about yourself and about the world and about sin prior to being a Christian. You are a theologian. The, the question really is, am I a good theologian? Am I an accurate theologian? Everybody's a theologian. And we need to think about how does theology relate to the Bible? If the Bible is the sole source of doctrine and spiritual life, then the Bible is necessarily the source of all of our ologies, our, our theologies, our uh, soteriology, the study of salvation, homardiology, the study of sin, anthropology, the study of man. All the ologies must come from Scripture. And frankly, if you get your bibliology wrong, if you get your bibliology wrong, your other ologies will leak and eventually fall apart. The Bible is to be the foundation of all theology. And what is the relationship of the Bible to theology? I've got a chart for you in the, in the printed form. There are some bubbles here with really tiny print uh, that's going to be really hard to see, but I'll talk us through these things. Uh, the, the chart is titled Doctrinal Formation. And there's a typical way we go about thinking about theology, and then there's a preferred way. I want to introduce to you what typically happens. Uh, you are a theologian from birth. You invoke things. You believe things about God and the world around you and about yourself. And the way doctrine forms will kind of flow downwards from this chart. When you become a believer, we'll just make that the starting point. When the Holy Spirit indwells somebody, all of a sudden, I love Jesus. I didn't love him before, and I want to know God, and I start to read his word. We're going to call that the starting point of doctrinal formation, even though we recognize that unbelievers are theologians too. Uh, but something happens at new birth, and all of a sudden, your world is changed. Your mind begins to be renewed. You're a new creature and you have new desires, new affections, new loves, new interests. And we'll call that the starting point here for our chart. Typically what happens is the gospel comes into your life. And for most of us, the gospel came from people. Somebody shared the gospel with you. Somebody took time and invested in your life and, and got up the courage and said something like, you know, uh, you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> In fact, it's a lot worse than you think, and you need Jesus. And, and, and somehow, some way, some supernatural thing happened 
called new birth. And God rescued you and upended you and brought you to himself. And, and that gospel is attached to the people we were around when we believed the gospel. Now, for me, when I became a Christian, I was around people who believed certain things. And, and some of those doctrines, some of those theologies were really good and things that I still hold today. And some of those doctrines, some of those views of God and the world and myself are things that I've had to abandon since then. Not everything that everybody believes is true. Not everything that everybody believes is biblical. And typically what happens is the people that you're around when you first embraced Christ become the people that have significant influence in your life in a discipleship relationship. You begin to imbibe the theological perspectives that they have. And, and in my case, the, the people who were around me were godly people who loved their families, who loved the church, who, who wanted to live for Christ. And so the, the things that they believed, the things that they taught me were very appealing. There wasn't a stumbling block I had to get over in terms of their life. And that was true for me when I went to Bible college. I, I looked up to the men that I studied under. And, and they were men who loved their wives and taught their kids and were faithful in their churches. And, and many of them taught me error that I've had to unlearn. And, and, and this is what typically happens in our doctrinal formation. The, the gospel comes to us and it comes in a context of people. And we begin to get our theology from those people. What we believe about sin and ourselves, soteriology, anthropology, ecclesiology, what we believe about the church, or eschatology, what we believe about end times, or all the other ologies. They flow out of those relationships, typically. And then we come to texts of scripture. You see, I was taught the gospel by people who believed a certain brand of theology, and so I imbibed that theology, and then I opened my Bible... And I know that the, the guardrails of that theology are now guiding me, so when I come to a passage that disagrees with that theology, who wins? Well, man, I, I haven't been around this very long. I guess those really smart, godly people around me must be right, and so I, I, I must not be reading my Bible right. And I begin to take that theological grid and superimpose it over the scriptures and read the Bible through the lens of the theology that I've been handed. It's very typical. And, and depending on how accurate that theological grid is, may be more of a help or a hindrance to understanding the scriptures. And then what do I have to do? If I've come to texts with my theological grid, I am now, whether I realize it or not, teaching myself a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is a set of rules we use to uh, interpret literature, to interpret language, spoken language, written language, to interpret scripture. Your hermeneutics are the, are the rules that you use to understand words, words in their context, where you want to understand what meaning is. And, and language is universal. God's the inventor of language. God created us as language receptors. God spoke so as to be understood. God did not have a speech impediment. He invented language and invented our ability to understand language and then communicated in language so that we could know him. 
God has not been in the business of hiding things, but revealing things. That's why we call the Bible revelation. It is God's self-disclosure. But see, if I have a theological grid superimposed over Scripture, and now I have to read my Bible through that grid, sometimes I'm not going to allow the Bible to speak for itself, for God to communicate on his own terms. Let me give you just an example. If the people who led me to Christ believe in the sovereignty of God, and by the way, I just want you to know, I affirm that doctrine. It is a biblical doctrine. But if I've been taught to see everything through the lens of the sovereignty of God, and now that becomes the interpretive grid through which I read every verse of the Bible, what might I do? I might dismiss very important things that God wants to reveal about the responsibility of man. I might dismiss very important things that God wants to reveal about the relationship between us and him through prayer. Or the need for passionate, persuasive evangelism to win people to Christ. And what I've done is I've taken a theological concept that I imbibe from people that I respect and I make it the interpretive grid over Scripture. My friends, that is not the way we read our Bibles. You ought to be reading your Bible the way you read just about anything else. Of course, um, with more reverence for the one who wrote it, with a commitment to the fact that it is without error and all the things that make the Bible what it is. But in terms of language, we simply... Aim to understand what did the author mean by what the author said. We're aiming for authorial intent. That is our hermeneutic or our rule of interpreting scripture. So let me offer to you another way of doctrinal formation. The ideal way. And I don't know that anybody has ever actually done this. But this is what we are aiming for and trying to get closer to all the time. This is the, the way the elders at Grace Bible Church view the relationship between doctrine and the Bible. Again, the chart flows downward here. And, and the first thing at the top is that God speaks. First understanding is simply that God is a speaking God. He has chosen to disclose himself and reveal himself. And this began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The fact that you and I have a Bible is evidence of the fact that God himself wanted his words to be encapsulated in a fixed form. You see, when something gets written down, it's frozen in that form. Uh, God told that guy something, and now I'm relying on him to tell me what God said, and then I'm relying on the guy that told him to tell me that this telephone game of endless potentiality for error... But what God has done for us instead is preserved his communicative act in Scripture, cemented it for us so that it has permanence. So God is a speaking God, and that leads us to a certain bibliology, a way we view the Scriptures. If God is a speaking God and he's chosen to communicate to us in the Scriptures, we can affirm some things about the Bible that we know to be true about God. For instance, Titus 1-2 says God cannot do something. Do you know that? The omnipotent God of the universe can't do something. What is that something in Titus 1-2? He can't lie. God cannot lie. It is impossible for him to do that. So everything that God speaks is truth. What does that tell us about our Bibles? It can't lie. It cannot err. It is inerrant. 
So a right view of God speaking leads us to a right bibliology, which then leads us to a right hermeneutic. That is the set of principles we use to interpret language. And a right hermeneutic, the way we would affirm that is literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. That is, we're paying attention to the words. We're paying attention to the words in their context. We're paying attention to the words in their original setting. We're committed to single meaning and authorial intent. That was a mouthful, and that is an anticipation of a hermeneutics class to come. Okay? Bottom line is, we want to know what God meant by what God said. And a right view of God leads us to a right view of the Bible, which leads us to a right way of reading the Bible. I don't get to come to the Bible and make the words in it mean whatever I want them to mean. I can't come to the Bible and make the words that I read different than the way you should read it, as if whatever it means to each one of us differently in some sort of postmodern way is okay. It's not okay. God wrote to be understood, and his meaning is what we must get. Now, if we have a right view of God and a right view of of the Bible itself leading to a right hermeneutic, that hermeneutic then gets applied to actual texts. So now I come to my Bible with the understanding that God has sought to reveal himself. And if I'm going to understand what God meant by what he said, I may have to do a little work to understand what Scott was talking about this morning. Maybe I need to pick up uh, Keller's book on shepherding because I don't know anything about shepherding in the ancient Near East. Maybe I close a a distance gap of 2,000 years of culture, time, and history and figure out what that would have been like. There's a little bit of work for me to do, but the bottom line is I need to know what God meant by what he said. And when I come to texts, I want to dislodge my own presuppositions, my own ideas, my own preconceived ideas, and I want to submit myself to God's word because God has revealed himself. Now, when I come to texts, what am I going to find? Theology statements about God, propositional statements about God, things revealed about God's ways and God's works, who he is, what he's like, what he does. And then all the ologies under that. I'm going to come to my Bible and I'm going to find out things about soteriology. How does God save sinners and still maintain his reputation as holy? I'm going to find answers to questions like that. But I'm going to find those answers not by getting a theology textbook and superimposing it over my Bible, But by going to my Bible and reading it the way language works and discovering what God has chosen to reveal. And so we build our theology. Did I skip one? Was that it? I think that was it. So we build our theology from Scripture. Uh, One one professor has said, well, one of the professors at Expositor Seminary, Dr. George Zemeck, has said this, theology is to be exegetically derived and systematically expressed. That means, how do I get my theology? I go read Wayne Grudem. Okay, Wayne Grudem's great. (laughs) However, that's not ideally how I form my theology. I form my theology by the application of hermeneutics to the scriptures. I read them the way they were intended to be read. And I derive my theology there. And it's okay after I've derived my theology from Scripture to systematically organize it. Is it possible to say, um, how has God revealed himself as a shepherd? And I'm going to start in Genesis, end in Revelation, and walk all the way through that. We would call that biblical theology. Or a theology that watches the progress of Revelation through the Bible on a specific theme. 
And then we might do systematic theology where we systematically categorize all the factors of God being a shepherd in Scripture. Is it okay to do that? Yes. But our starting point has to be exegesis or the understanding of the Scripture with the tools of hermeneutics. Reading the Bible, seeking authorial intent. What did God mean by what he said? That is ideally the way we are to relate theology and the Bible. Theology is to be exegetically derived and systematically expressed. I want to suggest that there are some significant threats to that in our day that we have to guard ourselves against and push ourselves back to the Bible. Uh, one of those threats is just celebrity endorsement. Oh, well, my favorite theologian says this. Uh, okay. Can you have a favorite theologian? Sure. But what does that matter if he disagrees with this? <laughs> right? We must be asking and answering the question, what does the Bible say? Another threat to that is, is the attempt to dislodge the Bible from its details. To, to de-anchor the message of the Bible from actual texts and details in text. Do you understand that when uh, New Testament writers go to prove a point, they often go down to a single letter in an Old Testament text to prove the point? They, they observe things like grammar, singulars and plurals and grammatical features and meanings of words. This is all very instructive for us, that, that God's message is in the details. And listen, there's a movement today to say, never mind the details. These are not the details you're looking for. Pay attention to me as I describe the big picture, the panoply, the meta-narrative of the Bible. You just need to understand the, the grand sweep of things. And often I find that people who are emphasizing the grand sweep of things are wanting to get our eyes off of specific details that go against their theological system. You see, the big picture can support a system but the details may not. You need to understand how the Bible is written. The Bible is not an impressionistic painting with inarticulate, unintelligible brushstrokes. You, you ever look at an impressionistic painting up close? You, you look close at the details and you see brushstrokes and, and colors that make no sense in and of themselves. The, the Bible is not written that way. The, the Bible is actually written like a high-definition photograph where you can look at individual pixels and see details and see colors. And, and, and those things are not just a, a random blur. And those individual pixels are not a recreation of the whole in micro. But each pixel has its place, its color, its details on purpose by God. And every single one is worth looking at. And listen, do we want the big picture? Absolutely. But the big picture is made of the details. And the Bible can withstand the scrutiny of its details. Now, our theological systems might not. Listen, if you've got a theological system that is broken by the details of a text, guess what? Your theological system's wrong. It's wrong. It either needs to be tweaked or abandoned. Why? Because the Bible wins. The Bible trumps theological systems. And the details are what make up the whole. So we need to move on to another question. And you get a, a nice college word here, epistemology. Epistemology, epistemos, logos, epistemos, knowledge, and logos, a study of knowledge. 
It really is a study of how do we know what we know? Or to make it more personal, what kind of a knower am I? Have you ever thought about that? How do I know what I know? I just know what I know, and that's how I know what I know, because I know what I know. It's really important to think, how do I come to the knowledge that I have? And when it comes to epistemology, there's really only two kinds of knowers, a revelational knower or a rational knower. That is, I know what I know about God and myself and the world and sin and the way things are because God said so. And I've submitted myself under his word. I'm not in judgment of God's word. Actually, God's word's in judgment of me. You know how audacious it is before the God of the universe to say, ah, I'm not really sure about this Bible thing. I think there's probably errors. In them. When the whole time God himself is indicting us and holding out hope for life and rescue And to sit in judgment of that is a a tragic reality of the flawed nature that we're born with. (laughs) Because of our sin, we are all committed to this rational knowing. That is, I'm going to use the tools that I possess in and of myself to go and find out what's true and what's not. And I will sit in judgment of every other kind of knowing. That's what we're born into. That's what we believe naturally. And until you're rescued, you will always fall into that category of the rational versus the relational knower. Another way to say this is, are you a dependent knower or are you independent or autonomous? Are you going to choose to surrender your knowledge and the way you know what you know to the scriptures? Or are you going to carry on your life autonomous, independent? I am the determiner of my knowledge. I am the captain of my knowing. Uh, Do you know where that ship goes? The way of a man seems right, but the end of it is what? Death. You're committed to your own personal, rational, autonomous epistemology. You'll be destroyed. It doesn't take very long to think through the foolishness of it when you think about how many bare facts there are in the universe and how many of them you know. Have you thought about that? Just, Just one bare fact how many fish swam in the Mediterranean Sea on April 17th, 1968? Anybody know that fact? It's actually a fact, and it is knowable. I don't think anybody knows it. Now, just multiply that by billions and billions and trillions and quadrillions of knowable facts, and then think about how much you know. Squat. We know so little. And yet we have the arrogance to think that I'm the determiner of knowledge, and I'm the determiner of knowing how to know. That's a frightful proposition. One more way to think about this is, are you humble or rebellious in your epistemology? Are you humble? What what does God define humility as? Isaiah 66. The one who trembles at my word. The the one who hangs on everything that God has said. Jesus said, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. Are you a humble, dependent, revelational knower? Or are you committed to your own autonomy that will only bring about destruction? Now, let's think through the implications of the Bible's being the very Word of God. The first implication to think through is the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Uh, This is a critical doctrine. Again, Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie. All of its words and all of its parts are error-free. 
all of its words and all of its parts are error-free. Wayne Grudem says it this way, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything contrary to fact. By the way, this is a claim the Bible makes for itself. Now you, you've got them in your notes, but you can write down Psalm 19, 7 to 9, Psalm 119, 89, John 10, 35. That is one of the Bible's own doctrines. The Bible's own bibliology is no errors here. Now, that kind of sounds like circular reasoning, doesn't it? You mean, you believe the Bible doesn't have any errors because the Bible says it doesn't have any errors? What if the Bible has errors? Then that statement's an error, and your whole foundation is shot. Um, I grant that, that that is a circular argument. Um, and, and, and the statement that says, well, I believe the Bible does have errors, is also a circular argument. Have you ever thought about that? I believe the Bible has errors. Well, on whose authority do you believe that? Well, I just think it. Whoa, that's a lot smaller circle and a lot worse and a lot less reliable. Listen, the Bible can stand the test of scrutiny over its inerrancy, but its inerrancy is not up for debate. Do you understand the difference? The Bible can withstand the scrutiny over the details on its claims to inerrancy. Listen, next time somebody comes up to you and says, well, there's errors in the Bible, you can't trust it. Oh, oh, I've been reading this book my whole life. I haven't found one yet. Do you know of one? Will you show me? Just invite the challenge. God can withstand that. Now, the Bible's inerrancy is not up for debate. It's not as if the, the, your friend who says the Bible has errors is on some equal footing with the Scripture. In fact, he's going to have his mouth closed by the Scriptures. The Bible can withstand the scrutiny. Some helpful clarifications on inerrancy. Sometimes we think that um, we have the wrong uh, categories for inerrancy. First of all, inerrancy does not mean that the Bible gives exhaustive knowledge on every subject it touches. Right? You don't have to know every, you don't have to state everything to state something truly. For us, we don't have to know exhaustively to know something truly. The Bible doesn't have to say everything there is to be said about chemistry in order to speak accurately about chemistry when it does so. Does that make sense? The Bible doesn't have to say everything about history to be accurate, only that whatever it does touch on, whatever it does speak on, is absolutely 100% accurate. Secondly, inerrancy does not mean that the Bible conforms to modern scientific classifications, right? You're reading about the kinds of birds that, that you were not allowed to eat under Mosaic law, and you read about the bat, and you think, well, bat's not a bird, bat's a mammal, it has hair. Uh, well, scientific classifications, King Philip ordered a plate of, what is that thing? Kingdom phylum class order family genus species. You know that's arbitrary and dates to the 19th century, right? Um, somebody made that up to try to decide. Now, um, someone arbitrarily decided that a bat, which flies like a bird but has hair like a mammal, should be classified as a mammal, not a, whatever it is. What is it? A, ma- a mammal, mammal, not a bird. But the duck-billed platypus, who decided where to put that thing? That's just crazy. So those are arbitrary. The Bible doesn't have to conform to arbitrary classifications. Also, the Bible can speak from the perspective of the speaker, right? The Bible is not an error when it says the sun rose. Any more than the doctorate in meteorology who shows up on the television every single morning, the scientist says, sunrise this morning was that. We all know the sun doesn't rise. But from the perspective of the speaker... We're not going to take all the time to describe a a spinning globe orbiting the earth and spinning on its axis every 24 or so hours. 
The Bible can speak from the perspective of the speaker and still be accurate. The Bible can use approximations. 185,000 Assyrians woke up and they were dead. Was it 185,003? I don't know. Was it exactly 185,000? I don't know, but the Bible can approximate. That's not a matter of inerrancy. And also the Bible can use ordinary language to describe natural phenomenon. Uh, This kind of thing happens uh, often. What inerrancy does mean is that the Bible speaks truthfully about everything it says. And a denial of inerrancy has consequences. If you believe the Bible has errors, you have no foundation. Listen, we find an error in this book. I close it and walk away. That's how important inerrancy is. Can you trust God? The God who says he cannot lie has written a book. He claims it is his book. We'll look at that more next week under inspiration. It is the Bible's own claim that it is the breathed out word of God. And if it has errors, it is not God's breathed out word. And if it is not God's breathed out word, it's not worth reading because it lies. This is critical. And and any Christians, any theologians who want to slight inerrancy in order to maybe gain some hearing or or be winsome to a world who, who was born denying it, doesn't actually gain anything but loses everything. To deny inerrancy is to deny one of the Bible's own doctrines. You can't say, I believe this doctrine, that doctrine, that doctrine, but deny the Bible as the source. Otherwise, you've made some other theologian, or worse, you've made yourself the authority for knowing truth. And that's a dead end. Ultimately, we become the standard for what's true if we deny inerrancy. Next, the Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. We believe in the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. Why we have to use a, an unclear word that, just to say clear, I don't know. But if you see perspicuity, it just means clarity of Scripture. Listen, the Bible was written to be understood. Revelation 1.3, uh, maybe the most enigmatic book in our Bible, begins with this promise. Blessed or happy is everyone who reads, who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. A blessing from God if you will read it. And, and the Bible was not intended to be read only at the level of the ivory tower academicians who know all the big fancy words. Oh, but anybody that can read, read this book. God will reveal himself in this book. It's why he wrote it. He wrote it to be understood. He wrote it to be meditated on, Psalm 1-2. Blessed is the man who meditates on it day and night. That that just means to think about it, to to read it, to ingest it, to to take it in and and to ponder over and over. The Bible was written also to be obeyed. Consider every command in Scripture. Those were not written to confuse. They were written to be understood and followed. And then the Bible was written to be taught. Psalm 119, 130. There's a, there's a command that we who know God's word teach others God's word. All of these things imply, indicate that the Bible is clear enough to have these things done, to, to be understood, to be meditated on, to be obeyed, to be taught. And there's a problem with perspicuity or clarity, right? There's the objective clarity of the scriptures. God wrote, he did not have a speech impediment. He spoke clearly. Uh, he can be understood. And yet man, there's things in here I don't understand. You ever feel that way? You ever read your Bible and go, I wonder what this psalm is about? 
Uh, that happened in our family devotions this week. Uh, maybe just a little comfort if you're working hard to read the Bible to your kids. Um, you know, dad's a pastor and mom says, what is this psalm about? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I, I haven't gotten to the bottom of everything in here. But that is not a threat to the clarity of Scripture. Nothing wrong with God's speaking. The only problem is with my hearing, my understanding, my learning, my discipline, my diligence. I got to get after it, right? Just, just like any other bit of literature, uh, you're, you're working hard to understand something. An author may have been unclear, but oftentimes an author was clear enough, and I need to work hard to understand There are barriers to my subjective understanding of God's word. Subjective persecuity, we might call it. Number one is just categorical unbelief. If you're not a Christian, if the Holy Spirit who authored this book is not personally indwelling you and renewing your mind, there will be clouds hanging over this book and you will not see it. Paul describes the Jews who did not believe in Jesus as having a veil over their eyes, even when they read their favorite books, didn't understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural man does not understand the things of God. He cannot. They're spiritually appraised. So there is a significant, impassable barrier to a right understanding of God's word if you are not saved, if you're not a believer, if you have not surrendered in faith to the God of the universe to know his word. Likewise, Another barrier to perspicuity is residual unbelief. So if I'm a Christian, but I'm holding out in unbelief against God, there are things that I'm resisting in him, things I don't want to trust about him. That's going to cloud my view of scripture. I'm going to come to something that I don't want to believe. It's going to be there in plain language. And I'm going to say, nope, don't believe that. I've done that. Have you ever done that? Maybe you've come to the scriptures with your preconceived theological notions and something didn't fit and you went, next verse. Maybe I won't read that book for a while. Maybe I'll just read my favorite passages again. That's a barrier to the clarity of scripture. And I would say just in general, sin obscures. Any unconfessed, unmortified, unsanctified attitude, behavior, or idolatry will get in the way of your understanding Scripture correctly. Listen, what if the Bible wants to address the thing in your heart that you're tempted to love more than God? If you're not ready to turn away from that idolatry, you're going to have a hard heart toward that passage, and you're going to skip over it. Or maybe stop reading your Bible for a while. I don't want to be confronted by the Bible. Sin obscures And then, of course, a wrong bibliology leading to a wrong hermeneutic, uh, maybe a theologizing of the Bible, is going to obscure my understanding of what God meant by what God said. There are bigger picture barriers to, to the clarity of Scripture. One is satanic blindness. The God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers so they can't understand the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 4. And then you have a really scary one called judicial blindness. That's where God Himself gives one over to the thoughts you want to have, which is actually a judgment of God to let you go your own way in your thoughts. Read Romans 1, three times God gives them over and it culminates in a depraved mind. They become fools because they've rejected truth that God has given and God gives them over to more error. Matthew 13 is the classic example in the life of Christ. Jesus spoke plainly, publicly, and then in Matthew 13, he spoke in parables to actually hide from the people who rejected his word already, to hide from them truth. Uh, There's a reality that if you want to go your own way and reject God's truth, he could give you more darkness. 
But listen, the scriptures themselves have the power to overcome all of it. The scriptures themselves have the power to overcome all of it. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody, the best thing you can do, point them to scripture. Lest they believe something on your authority, show them what God says. Uh, buy them a Bible, give them a Bible, invite them to read it for themselves. In, invite somebody, hey, ha- have you ever read the Bible for yourself? Have you ever read the Gospel of John? Would you read a chapter? I'll read that chapter and we'll get together and talk about it. Put scriptures in front of people. The scriptures can withstand the scrutiny and they actually have the power to overcome our presuppositions. If you're into postmodern lingo, our situatedness. You know, recognize that everybody is situated in their own perspective. Everybody comes with their own perspective to any issue, and it's hard to get out of your own perspective and think about something objectively. Well, guess what? The scriptures have the power to overcome all of it. Powerful. Another significant implication of the scripture being God's word is that it is authoritative. It's authoritative. Um, when we read the Bible, it's as if we enter the very throne room of God and God is speaking audibly. Do you treat the scriptures this way? God, you're speaking. And then a last thing. The Bible is revelation. I've set this one apart a little bit. This is a little bit different. The fact that it is the very word of God means it is the revealing of God to us. It is God's self-disclosure. And God has disclosed himself in his word so that we could know him. So that we could love him so that we could worship him, fear him, obey him, enjoy him. That is why God has given us his word. The, the main reason God gave us this word is not so that you can win a theological argument, not so that you can fill your head with information, but so that you can know him. That's why he gave us his word. The next four weeks, we'll be talking through issues that, that, are, that are the questions people typically ask about, can I trust the Bible? Okay, I hear what you're saying. I love Christ, but these people ask me these questions. And I've watched the History Channel, and I've been on PBS. And then they're, 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 they're my friends at school and my, my teachers in the classroom, they, they shoot the Bible down. They say it's full of errors. Can I trust the Bible? Listen, I, I would suggest that if you have questions like that, I would want you to submit them. You can write them down, hand me a piece of paper. You can send me an email or a text. And we'll try to work some of those questions in the next four weeks. And we'll be focusing in on those issues of how is the Bible written? Has it come down to us faithfully? Has it been preserved accurately? And if the original manuscripts don't exist, how do we know that our copies of the copies of the copies faithfully represent them? That's where we're going in the next few weeks. You're dismissed.